0: Hello and welcome to my digital talk on the emerging post-conflict situation in the South Caucasus. As you saw from the title, South Caucasus is meanwhile a global hotspot and this is what we are going to discuss with my guest today. Not only it is a global hotspot, but it is also important as it has implications for international political and economic relations in the broader regions, starting with relations among the countries there. This digital discussion will also focus on countries such as Turkey, Russia, Iran, the Greater Caspian Sea region, and finally China. We also will try to outline certain forecast developments in the post-Cold War International System broader sense until 2025 and through the 2020s and to the 2030s and hopefully even until 2040s. I'm pleased for this talk to welcome my good friend and colleague Robert Cutler. Dr. Cutler was educated at MIT and the University of Michigan. First as a historian and then as a Sovietologist during the late Cold War, he taught and researched at leading institutions in Canada, France, Russia, Switzerland and the United States. Following the disintegration of the Soviet bloc and the Soviet Union, he branched out into policy advising, consulting and journalism for the last quarter of century on European and Eurasian international and energy security. He has consulted widely to governments, international institutions, the private sector and NGOs and he maintains an extensive presence on the web. I'm always particularly interested in his views because much of what he writes is informed by the theory and application of the science of complex systems, an approach that I also use to analyze and assess uh, the global uh, affairs. Um, His current titles are Senior Research Fellow and Director, Energy Security Program, NATO Association of Canada, Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and Practitioner Member at the Waterloo Institute for Complexity and Innovation at the University of Waterloo. So welcome to this digital talk. Uh, it's great uh, uh, that you have joined me today, dear Robert.
1: Thank you, Valina. It's always a pleasure to be with you and I thank you for the invitation.
0: And the topic is can be not uh, more relevant as of today. Uh, as I understand it, from reading what you have been writing over the past months, you have spent a good time in writing and thinking about the Salt Caucasus. So, we will start this talk by uh, actually trying to outline uh, what the second Karabakh war and its aftermath are actually uh, do mean actually for uh, global affairs. So let's start with uh, with your take, with your uh, analysis and your basically uh, assessment on um, on uh, the South Caucasus and specifically on the second uh, uh, Karabakh war
1: yes well again thank you for the uh, for the invitation I, just to briefly set the scene and remind uh anyone who's listening uh about uh the a few uh relevant uh details broad in a broad sense that uh karabakh is region of uh azerbaijan that uh was recognized, has always been part of the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic. Uh, and in the late 80s, even before the Soviet Union disintegrated, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is largely Armenian, but there's a larger region called Karabakh, of which Nagorno-Karabakh is lit, is the highest section, mountainous Karabakh, it means. So the uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, Armenian forces, uh, military forces uh, assisted somewhat by uh, Soviet-Russian military forces, but mainly Armenian military forces uh, occupied, Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and seven surrounding administrative uh, areas, districts in Azerbaijan representing nearly 20% of the territory of Azerbaijan, Uh, these, uh, there were four united Nation Security Council's res- resolutions in 1993, uh, demanding the immediate withdrawal of these forces, uh, and affirming that uh, the territories that were occupied were integral part of what was had become the Republic of Azerbaijan. Uh, it went on for 30 years, uh, the occupation, uh, skirmishes here and there, now and then, In uh, 2016, there was another skirmish actually 100 miles away from the border of Nagorno-Karabakh in uh, in the summer of 2020, uh, which uh, lasted four days and was the worst outbreak for four years. Uh, This was uh, motivated mainly by the uh, desire of the Armenian Prime Minister, Nikol Pashinyan, who came to power in 2018. Uh, in what looked like a color revolution uh, to uh have his uh, reputation as a military uh, leader uh, uh, furnished uh, furbished and uh however, it ended in a stalemate, nothing really changed and uh subsequently in September uh, the Azerbaijani forces uh, moved to uh take back. Uh, the Occupied Territories, uh, which uh, the the war lasted 44 days. Uh, I won't go into details about how it proceeded. Suffice it to say that three ceasefires were agreed, which were never uh, honored uh, by the Armenian side. And so the Azerbaijani forces continued to uh, advance uh, until the night of November 9th and 10th, when finally a ceasefire agreement was signed under Russian mediation in Moscow, um, and it must be said, just parenthetically, that the uh, Azerbaijani forces—it is fair and it is accurate to say, under international law, that uh, availing themselves of the Article 51 of the UN Charter, the right to self-defense, and uh, they made, mainly implemented these four resolutions from 1993, which demanded the exit of the Armenian forces, which the international community had failed to implement over 30 years. And uh, there still is remaining a portion of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, which is not, as they say, de-occupied. This is where the Russian peacekeepers are, uh, following the uh, ceasefire agreement of, uh, of Nove- in, in November last year. Uh, the ceasefire agreement also uh, had the condition that the Armenian forces should withdraw uh, from the occupied territories, other, from the other occupied territories, the Russians. Uh, military would also assure passage through the Lachin corridor, which is uh, a road from which Armenian territory to uh, Stepanakert, called Konkendi capital of Nagorno-Karabakh. And they are going to be there for five years, the Russians, and the ceasefire uh, provides that they may be renewed for five years if both parties agree, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, There were provisions for internally displaced persons and refugees to return to the territories, exchange of prisoners of war and so on, and which we will talk about a little more because it has geopolitical and geoeconomic significance the opening of a corridor between the main body of Azerbaijan and its exclave of Nakhshivan, which borders Turkey, and uh, which can be reached uh, either by crossing Iranian territory or by crossing Armenian territory.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe it's going to be also interesting for our audience uh, if we uh, say a few words about the Caucasus region uh, in general, before we move to um, the next uh, topics, uh, because uh, this region uh, is situated between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. The Black Sea was was, uh, a lot in the headlines uh, in recent times due to the increased escalation between Russia and Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, and also the reactions on the side of NATO. Uh, It's also one of, uh, it entails one of the global choke points. This is the Bosphorus, uh, important specifically for food. Um, supplies, but also for uh, Russia as uh, basically the main uh, access, uh, so to say, for its uh, trade uh, volumes uh, via the Black Sea. And on the other side uh, uh, is also the Caspian Sea, which is also uh, very, very interesting. We might uh, talk about about it a little bit later uh, when we talk also about Turkey. And also this uh, territory is occupied occupied by several countries Uh, so we have uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, which you've uh, already mentioned but we have also Georgia and also there are parts of southern Russia so one part which is called North Caucasus is actually within the Russian territory and it's a territory that has witnessed uh, a lot of terrorist activities uh, in the 90s following the collapse of the Soviet uh, Union. On the other side, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia are actually countries that are also part of uh, European Union initiatives and are moving closer to the European Union, to Europe, in terms of integration. So all of this uh, is uh, to show that, uh, I mean, the importance of this region uh, and of its uh, countries is uh, very, very... Uh, is 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 great one now uh, regarding your first statements, I would like to ask you about the current armenian Azerbaijani relations and the prospects for further implementation of uh, of uh, the agreements uh, that they have reached with uh, uh, the help of Russian mediation. Where do you see uh, the relations uh, go- in which direction do you see the relations going from from here?
1: Well, the future of the relations uh, depends on the wisdom of the leaders, and uh, the leader of Armenia uh, is uh, subject to a snap parliamentary election that was agreed with the opposition uh, if set for June of this year. So uh, the uh, opposition in Armenia is the so-called by them the Karabaki clan of uh, Kocharian and Saqsian who participated in the uh, war in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And uh, occupied the posts of president and prime minister for 20 years uh, from 1998 until 2018 when Pashinyan came uh, to power in what uh, has the appearance appearance of a a color revolution. so the future, it depends partly on this. Now, uh, it's related to, your question is related uh, exactly to uh, the prospects for the further implementation of the ceasefire, because the last and ninth point of that ceasefire from last November uh, provides for, uh, I mentioned the uh, corridor between uh, Azerbaijan and Nachshivan called the Zangazur Corridor after the Azerbaijani name for it. Uh, and uh, that's not all there is. Uh, the ninth point of the uh, ceasefire agreement calls for the uh, not only the safety of transport but in the organization uh, of uh, unimpeded movement in citizens that the opening up of all transport uh, links uh, between, amongst Azerbaijan and, and Armenia, because, and, and, and this is happening. This has happened and it's going to continue happening. The reason it's going to continue to happen is that it's in the Russian interest for it to happen. Uh, it's much easier for, uh, and, and it's much easier for Armenians who are traveling to Moscow to go by rail through Azerbaijan, other because the uh, connections through Georgia are not as, not as good for transportation, uh, direct transportation. So there's that, and the uh, Arme- I'm sorry, Azerbaijan is uh, already uh, delivering gas uh, to Armenia, Russian gas, uh, because uh, otherwise Armenia has to buy electricity from Georgia, they have to you know, get, get gas from Georgia. It's just that the, the connections are, uh, uh, of all sorts of things are a lot easier to, Azerba- to Armenia through Azerbaijan. Uh, and it's in the Russian interest. That's why it's going to happen, and the Zongazur corridor is also in the Russian interest, and that's why it's going to happen because um the Armenian railways are owned by the Russian railways actually, and if the Russian railways want to build this line or refurbish the line or rebuild it because it's it there was one uh then it's like very quite likely to happen um, uh Regardless of who is elected prime minister in June, it will probably be Pashinyan because uh, Russia, because it's in Russia's interest that Armenia should uh, be more uh, economically developed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this corridor also will give Russia direct access to Turkey by rail through Azerbaijan and through the corridor. And from Turkey, you can go wherever you can go out from Turkey, you know, that's bordered by so many countries, you can go almost anywhere in the region. So uh, that is uh, very likely. Uh, as for, uh, well, let me stop there. You, you had a question about the further implementation and there, there are steps beyond that. But uh, I'll just stop there by uh, underlining or just repeating that this is not a peace settlement. It is a ceasefire agreement. In Azerbaijan, uh, it's referred to, and they're not wrong about it, it's a, it's a capitulation document. Uh, they said what the terms would be, and Armenia accepted them. So the Armenian forces capitulated in the end because uh, they had no choice. And uh, But it's a ceasefire agreement, not a peace settlement.
0: Mm-hmm and you also mentioned uh, georgia so i will ask a very short question on georgia's take uh, uh, regarding these developments and particularly how georgia what what georgia's role in all of this is uh, maybe just to make a very short clarification for our audience for those who are not familiar with uh, the region and with the countries there that ro- georgia itself was uh, um, involved in a military so in a war actually with russia in 2008 and uh, is still dealing with the implications of uh, this uh, war as uh, for example parts of georgia has been have been actually so too territories to regions have been actually now announced, uh, so to say, as, uh, you know, autonomous uh, republics um, and these are South City and Abkhazia. But then again, also the territory, so the borders of uh, Georgia are still being uh, changed uh, in, a, of course, a way that is not uh, conform with the international law. Uh, as uh, Russia has still um, the ability to do so uh, along uh, the border, so Georgia is very, very cautious regarding any activities uh, coming from Russia and its military, its troops uh, in the region, in the South Caucasus, and of course on the other side. How it's it's interesting to see how Georgia, what Georgia's role and take is on the developments that you've outlined for us.
1: Well, uh, yes, thank you. Uh, before I move to that, I just want to mention two other points that occurred to me while you were speaking to finish the answer to your last question, which is it uh, should be said that the OSCE organization, the, Minst, the so-called Minst group, of uh, it has no role anymore. Uh, you look at the Madrid principles that were. T- who have formed the basis of negotiation? There are six or seven of them, and and five five of them have already been realized by uh, facts on the ground created by, uh, created by Azerbaijan. And during the uh, fighting, uh, the president of France um, made some unfortunate statements, which uh, greatly diminished diminished his credibility as a neutral mediator. Uh, of France as a neutral mediator uh, and. Russia is very happy to have mediated the ceasefire the US had next to nothing to do with it uh the US brokered one of the cease, one of the earlier ceasefires that was never observed and so Russia is very happy uh nobody should take the OSCE's role in Karabakh conflict at seriously anymore because the conflict um is uh for all intents and purposes uh uh, over this is a controversial statement uh, from some points of view, but I think that objectively it's fair to say that although there is no peace settlement, the conflict itself uh, has been resolved by the reintegration of the formerly occupied territories into Azerbaijan. Uh, the last thing that I, that I forgot to mention about what would complicate about bilateral relations, one thing that is rather complicating the bilateral relations is that the Armenian side is refusing to turn over to the Azerbaijani side maps of the mines that they laid in the formerly occupied territories over 30 years and this rather complicates the return as you might imagine of refugees and internally displaced persons and economic development and so on it is in fact um, technically uh, the refusal to turn over these maps is a violation of customary international humanitarian law but we hope that that can be uh, can be resolved as uh, third countries begin to assist Azerbaijan in the demining, with or without maps. But it's a huge territory; uh, it's four times larger than Luxembourg, and there were 30 years of occupation. So it's a very difficult issue, and people are losing limbs every day. Actually, uh, now thank you for that opportunity to finish the answer to the last question. To bring come to Georgia. Uh, Yes, uh, and we can start to uh, uh, zoom out now. Uh, The um, president of of Turkey, Erdogan, had proposed uh, back in November or December uh, a a so-called six-way platform for addressing South Caucasus issues. These would be the three South Caucasus countries plus Turkey, uh, Russia, and Iran. Uh, Georgia uh, hesitates uh, strongly to be involved in any of this because they do not want to be in a forum with Russia when Russia is occupying territory that is Georgian territory under international law. What does exist already and will continue to exist is a series of trilaterals. And it was Erdogan's idea to build upon those trisla- trilaterals into a, into a sextet, uh, but, uh, which also would just be a platform for the trilaterals to meet and anything else to go on. But there are a number of trilaterals. Um, you have Azerbaijan, Georgia, Turkey. You have Azerbaijan, Russia, Iran. You have Azerbaijan, Turkey, Russia. Uh, and so those will, and these are focused on, on practical cooperation, uh, train tracks and things like that, facilitating international trade and so on. Uh, and that, that will continue, but it does not look like this six-way platform will uh, come to fruition any time soon. Um, mm-hmm. Did I answer that question?
0: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Okay. But uh, this uh, answer led me immediately to my next question, which is that I think it will be very interesting uh, for our audience to um, unpack um, the, this this trilateral relations a little bit. Um, and you've mentioned some of them, um, so we have Azerbaijan-Georgia-Turkey, we have Azerbaijan-Russian-Iran, uh, we also face a situation with, uh, you know, of relations between Russia, Turkey, and Azerbaijan. Then there is this uh, so-called uh, uh, greater Turco-Caucasian um, format, or if you like, oh, a that's that's not a, for,
1: that, that's, that's not a format or a political structure. Uh, we're continuing to zoom out. Um, as you know... Uh, I have uh, spent uh, a good deal of time uh, looking at uh, energy uh, resource development uh, in the South Caucasus and in the Caspian region more broadly. And um, what is, uh, there, there There are two ways to do it. Uh, one is to drill down and look at the pipelines and the details of, Ah uh, the investments and uh, which companies are involved and so on. Uh, and uh, the other way is uh, a more broad uh, a broader again zoomed out uh, what I call I'm not the only one it's come back into currency a geoeconomic uh, perspective uh, uh, which adds uh, I'll just mention this in passing is that Pipelines are important uh, because they're just like railroads were in Europe in the in the 19th century. Uh, European uh, powers in the 19th century built railroads uh, in order to extend their, administ- their, their central administration uh, into the countryside. Uh, what uh, these pipelines, that's how I started. I started with the Caspian Sea, and I just followed the pipelines everywhere they went. Now they go from Baumgarten to Beijing. Um, what the uh, pipelines represent are uh, not political alliances, but, but geo, at a minimum, geoeconomic ententes, if not strategic partnerships. And therefore, they structure international relations from the bottom up, starting in the 1990s. And so, uh, the uh, you mentioned Greater Turco Caucasia, uh, which uh, I should have to explain. Um, looking at the situations there uh, early on, uh, I tried different uh, ways to to recognize patterns. It's all about, the other way, the other way, aside from looking at the pipelines, the other way, when you zoom out and look at geo, geoeconomics is, is pattern recognition. That's the other way. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm talking about now, uh, is that uh, it's possible to conceive and it's and, and to, to, to justify uh, a geoeconomic complex called Turco-Caucasia. Turco Caucasia would be the uh, three South Caucasus countries plus uh much of the South much of the North Caucasus, but not all of it, going up to Novorossiysk on the Russian Black Sea and down to Dagestan uh on the Caspian Sea, but omitting basically half or more of the North Caucasus. This is also justified on topo- topographical basis. Then the Turco Caucasia would also include uh six uh, northwestern north sorry northeastern provinces of turkey and uh, the azerbaijani populated uh, part of iran but when you look at the energy I, I, iran's not in the picture so greater turco caucasia uh, then is just an enlargement over time that occurred of this uh turco caucasia and and this is based on the construction of certain pipelines that i won't go into the details about but you take my word for it or look for me look for my analyses on the on the web um, Greater Turco-Caucasia is how that expanded uh, beyond the South Caucasus pipeline which ended in Erzurum in northeastern Turkey and turned in eventually to the Trans-Anatolian natural gas pipeline which goes all the way to the Greek border. The Trans-Anatolian pipeline is known by its uh, Turkish acronym TANAP. Uh, And uh, so Greater Turco-Caucasia also enlarges. I won't go into the details because Turco-Caucasia was already long enough but Greater, Tur- Greater Turco-Caucasia is an enlargement uh, of, that, uh, of Tur- that that occurred over time on the basis of the further extension of uh, geoeconomic economic uh, energy ties. Uh, now, I might add that uh, there is a, not literally a mirror image, but a, a corresponding uh, complex in Central Asia uh, that we might, uh, have the time or not, have to discuss later. But I just wanted to mention that this is also uh, not something that's particular to the South Caucasus. It's a uh, way to approach these things that is applicable, in fact, at any scope or any level that you want to look at it. Whether it's, it could be, in, it could be domestically in one country or it could be continental, uh, and uh, and over time. And uh, I'll just stop there. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I could go, I, I, I love that topic and and, I, and, and and I will, you've been very polite to let me go on about it, but uh, I'm going to stop there.
0: I would like definitely to go on with this topic and uh, specifically for the reason that obviously Russia, Iran, and Turkey have specific interests in this region. So I would ask you what does these three particular regional actors uh, aim to achieve in this region uh, what do they want actually in this region maybe with a short with a short uh, reply regarding each one of them uh-huh. so that we also move to the central Eurasian uh, topic that I would also the, where I have also an additional question for you mm-hmm. regarding the East Central Eurasian hydrocarbon energy complex that you have shortly outlined for us.
1: Yes, well, Turkey, as I mentioned before, uh, seeks, uh, I'm, well, I didn't mention it before. I mentioned that Russia wants the Zangazor Corridor, Turkey, uh, because that gives it access. At the same time, Turkey uh, very much would like that uh, corridor uh, because it gives it access to the Caspian Sea through Azerbaijan. And there are various estimations of, how efficiently Turkey should be able to project its influence across the Caspian Sea to uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. Uh, over time, uh, Turkish construction companies have been very uh, involved. Right after the Soviet Union fell, uh, the uh, Central Asian countries, uh, all of which are Turkic, with the exception of Tajikistan, which is Persian culturally, uh, looked at uh, looked toward Turkey, uh, and basically Turkey couldn't come through for them, couldn't give them what they needed, uh, either, you know, diplomatically or foreign investment or technology, uh, and so there was. Uh, there was there were there was in the mid 90 s there was a great deal of there was a fair amount written about the competition between the Turkic model Turkish model and the Iranian model mm-hmm. for Central Asian and there actually never was such a competition um, and uh, and and Turkey's influence uh, diminished except on the economic level and on the person to person level of course uh, Russia uh, is uh, well Russia, as, as, as over the past two centuries, has been looking to uh, be, uh, I won't use the word hegemon, in South Caucasus. But uh, you might remember uh, the declaration by Soviet Prime Minister, Andrei Gromyko, in the 70s, that there is no question of world politics that cannot be decided without taking into account the view of Russia, of the view of the Soviet Union, uh-huh. Well, um, without implying that or even addressing, I've already hinted at it, but I, we'll leave the connection between the Russian Federation and the Soviet Union for another discussion. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that uh, today, uh, what, Ms., what Monsieur Gromyko said about the Soviet Union and the world at large uh, is transferable to Russia's view of the South Caucasus. Um, that uh, and and in fact, uh, Russia. I believe that the Russian foreign policy establishment knows that they can't dictate every uh, move there, and that uh, they don't talk about this fact very wisely. And they simply say, "Oh, Azerbaijan wants to have a few Turkish officers in the peacekeeping center." Uh, that's. Outside the deoccupied area, there's a peacekeeping center that basically sends drones over the over Karabakh and sees what's going. No, going Karabakh and sees what's going on. They are not armed. They are, ter- they, are they are officers, uh, you know, with, uh, with and uh, I, I mean, I mean, they're they're you know the, the administrators really, uh, and they uh, co-operate the peacekeeping center with Russian, uh with her Russian counterparts. And so if the Turkish wants to want to do that, well, the Russians say, "Okay, well, you know, Azerbaijan invited them in, Azerbaijan's territory, uh, we can't stop them, we won't say anything, and maybe people won't notice so much. Uh, that said, um, Russia has a great deal of influence in Armenia. Uh, I dare say it also has more influence then is generally recognized amongst certain sectors of the political elite, political elite in Georgia, and I'll leave it at that. Um, and uh, so, uh, Russia wants Armenia to settle down. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you know you have you know Armenians. And Azerbaijan, the second, the first, the largest Armenian uh, diaspora is in Russia. I forget the exact figure, 1.3 million, something like that. And there are like 1.1 million Azerbaijanis in Russia. They get along fine. Of course, it's in the Russian interest that they get along fine on Russian territory also. But, uh, but they do. Uh, much of the um, virulent, uh, aggressive rhetoric and uh, nationalist strident strident nationalism that has characterized uh, Armenian uh, behavior, Armenian state behavior over the last 20 years uh, is due to the influence of the diaspora uh, and the Karabaki clan, which I mentioned before. Uh, And uh, the diaspora, of course, don't suffer the consequences that the people in Armenia have suffered. Uh, during the last war, so this is what Russia wants. They want just to uh, control, in the French or the Russian word, not to control in the English Anglo-Saxon sense, but to surveil, to overlook, to to, con- to control in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what Iran wants, uh, it's hard to say because uh, they are so in such di- the, the dire situation. Uh, and recently uh, volunteered, no, they didn't volunteer, the ruling elite volunteered to put the entire population and economy under the Chinese yoke for the next 25 years by a state-to-state document. Uh, what they want, uh, they'd like a little more, better transportation. Uh, this is what the Russia-Azerbaijan-Iran transfer, uh, cooperation is about uh they would uh, like better access to armenia which they which the corridor the Zangazur corridor would not cut them off from that access um iran i uh, i must say is not does not seem in a position to demand very much and i'll leave that leave it like that
0: Mm-hmm and you've also mentioned China so maybe this is now a good uh, way how we can move uh, towards the broader picture um, defining this uh, region. Uh, you've outlined for us also existing pipelines so obviously there are two economic interests in the region which are due to the fact that there are natural resources and energy reserves uh, in uh, in this region to, uh, unequally dispersed which makes uh, the situation even more complicated so the uh, next to the very low level of cooperation between these countries among each other uh, there is also this very unequal unequal uh, economic uh, development due to the fact that uh, not not all of them are actually Exploiting uh, certain uh, certain natural resources or fossil fuels, like it is, for instance, the case with Azerbaijan, which is energy an um, energy rich country. And you have uh, uh, you have also um, extensively written and uh, analyzed something that is called East Central Eurasian hydrocarbon energy complex uh specifically uh for the case of russia once again uh, but also china and kazakhstan so i'm using uh, the opportunity to mention this publication so that you can also tell uh the audience a little bit about this uh complex and how do you link this to the south caucasian region what is the what is the concrete uh, connection also to China? And why is China suddenly present in the region?
1: Yes, let me uh, build up to the central Eurasian uh, hydrocarbon energy complex, which uh, for an abbreviation I'll call it the HEC. Uh, I have uh, definitions and literature reviews and some publications, but just HEC. Uh, Also, the ordinary language signification gives you a good idea of what it means also. Um, You recall I mentioned the greater Turco-Caucasian hydrocarbon energy complex, in fact, is what it is, geoeconomic energy complex, Uh, and I mentioned how the Turco-Caucasian enlarged grew into the. Greater Turco Caucasian, well, it grew further, it enlarged further over time to what we can call the East Central, the East Central, I'm sorry, the West Central, the West Central Eurasian uh, hydrocarbon energy complex. Now, these uh, HECs typically have a triangular basis, uh, three countries, three capitals that form the basis for the extension. In the case of the uh, Turco-Caucasian and greater one, it's Russia, Azerbaijan and Turkey. And what happened in the uh, last 10 years, uh, well, what happened in from from roughly 1995 until 2005 was 2007 was the US got implicated in this And then, with the uh, arrival in power of the Obama administration, uh, for whatever reason, um, this influence, the the U.S. started paying less attention and has ceded some of its influence there to other actors. Uh, But the European Union came in, with uh, notably, most notably, with the project of the Southern Gas Corridor, uh which uh, which and also the um, the Eastern partnership building upon uh, the uh, the neighborhood program the Eastern European neighborhood program, the one that was directed to the east, became the Eastern partnership, includes also uh, Ukraine, Moldova and belarus. Uh, and uh, this became the, e- the east central Eurasia, if you add Brussels, to the original triangle I mentioned, uh, of Moscow, Azerbaijan, and Ankara, then you get the basis for the uh, East Central Eurasian HEC. Now, going on to the other side of the Caucasus, Central Eurasia, I'm sorry, Central Asia is the five stands. And there is a construct called Greater Central Asia, which um, can be justified on a cultural, historical, demographic, topographical basis. Uh, basically, uh, it, 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 it uh, circumambulates a uh, greater uh, Central Asia proper. It includes southern Russia. It includes uh, Xinjiang. It includes uh, part of the Caspian Sea. It includes northeast Iran. Uh, you, you get the idea. Uh, part of pa- a little bit of pakistan a little bit of, of of afghanistan you get the idea and that was greater central asia and then greater central asia as greater turco caucasia turned into east central eurasian so the la- so the former uh, greater central asia turned into west central eurasian uh, HEC. its basis originally before then when it was the central it was russia uh, Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan, uh, Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan being the two, two of the three energy giants. Uzbekistan is also an energy giant, but they produce almost exclusively, mostly for, until recently, mostly for domestic consumption, which is why you don't see them discussed in, in the same league. Um, then what happened uh, over time was first uh, the U.S. came into uh, the region. Uh, 20 years ago, then they, they left, and then the Europeans tried to come into the region, and it was too far away. And then the Chinese came into the region and they stayed. So now for West Central Eurasia, just as you had three plus one to be the the triangle plus one to be the basis for East Central Eurasia, uh, for West Central Eurasia, you have, you're adding Beijing, you're adding China uh to that and that's the basis for that so that's the east central eurasian and the west central eurasian now what about you know central eurasia i should have i should have brought maps i'm sorry i should have brought maps next time Um, the central eurasian studies society had a very nice definition of central eurasia on their website 20 years ago when i was on the executive committee it's not there anymore but it's um it's a great definition and i won't and and it's, it's rather too elaborate to 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 repeat but it i should say that east central and west central eurasia do not uh, collectively exhaust uh central eurasia uh central eurasian is um is is uh it inclu- it's centered on the caspian sea and it includes uh both the, the extensions of this and there's also uh Looking out into the future, starting there's also a greater Central Eurasian, but I mean it's almost I I don't want to appear to be playing with concepts or words, uh, because these really do have empirical empirical reference, and um, as you know, Valina, these are based on uh, complexity theory approaches, and one of the tenets of the pattern recognition uh, type of complexity theory is that no concept is valid unless it follows the detail the, the the Empirically existing detail, uh, reality in every detail. Mm -hmm. So uh, these are not just. I'm looking. I'm I'm waving my hand now in order to point to it and say I'm not hand waving. Okay, this is really. uh, So so that that that's uh, basically East Central, West Central, Central Eurasia. I could tell you what Central Eurasia is, but you know, I'll let you uh, decide where to go from this.
0: Now maybe to make some clarifications for our audience before we move to the um, scenarios and uh, uh, forecasts uh, for the next uh, two to three years and then from there we will try also to present a bigger picture for the global system, for the global affairs in a time framework of 2030 to 2040 uh, to um, to so the first clarification would be that uh, why the South Caucasus is to be seen as a global hotspot. is also because China is now um, very active in building certain terrestrial connectivities that go specifically to this uh, Central Asian uh, countries and meanwhile with the deviation also via Turkey. Um, to Black uh, Sea and to the South Caucasus. So that's why what uh, Robert uh, outlined in uh, within uh, this uh, greater energy um, Eurasian concept with the participation of different triangular formats, it's very important because uh, for energy-hungry China, this will be increasingly a region where China sees Uh, strong geoeconomic incentives to participate Uh, one reason will be of course uh, energy supply but there are also others such as the connection to uh, European Union via third countries that have uh, entered uh, trade or other association agreements and deals and then again of course if we take also uh other infrastructure connectivity projects into consideration you get the bigger picture so this is one clarification now another one is that um, why is it important uh is of course also because of the fact that turkey has become more assertive I, uh, iran is now part of a bigger equation uh in China's Silk Roads. So basically uh, you can just use one of the interactive maps uh, on Google and you can immediately uh, see how this terrestrial connectivity goes. One way is also uh, through Iran and that is why also Afghanistan has become so important uh, for, uh, for China. And uh, Robert also mentioned Xinjiang and uh, in uh, the West uh, Xinjiang is mostly known for the um, gruesome um, human conditions when it comes to certain minorities and when it comes to um, human rights um, violations and genocide. But uh, in this case, I'm mentioning Xinjiang because it is very important uh, territory because most of these terrestrial connectivities go through Xinjiang. So this is basically a place, a hub, where China can control its uh, terrestrial corridors moving. Um, to Central Asia on the one side, deviate to, deviating through Iran and Turkey on the other side, and then we have third terrestrial connectivity, which is then going through Pakistan and connecting China to the Indian Ocean. Now, I'm closing these remarks, and I want to move to the bigger picture, which is, uh, uh, dear Robert, what is your expectation, your anticipation for the next three to five years
1: period? In the South Caucasus or in general?
0: Um, so, given this already this about the South Caucasus.
1: Yes, so this is given, in, in general.
0: Exactly. So, moving out, from... you,
1: you, you have helped to zoom out uh, and give uh, an eagle eye view of um, some of the things that I discussed uh, in slightly greater detail. And so, what. Um, I have to, in order to answer your question, I must talk about the evolution of the post-Cold War international system, uh, because, uh, because that's how I look at it. Um, going back to, if you, if, if you would ask me to go back to the early 15th century, and describe the evolution of international systems since then, uh, focused on Europe, of course, uh, because uh, simply because it became universalized through colonialism. But, but uh, with all due respect to the international systems of Central Asia and and other places, uh, before then, um, I would be able to show you up until uh, the end of the twentieth century. Uh, six international systems, each of which goes through nine phases, which are three groups of three and so also the current international system uh, pr- is can be understood also through this uh, through this optique. I'm not going to go into great detail, but simply to say that. Uh, first of all, the, the pre- I have to say that it's a coincidence, so far as I can tell, that the current international system will last about 45 years, which is the sa- approximately the same length as the preceding international system, the Cold War system. Uh, that seems to be a coincidence because you look back to the early 15th century, there are 120 years, there are 80 years, there are 65 years. There's, there's no telling until you get into them what's going to happen next, because the evolution of an international system is path dependent. So where are we in these nine phase progression? Uh, well, the first three of any international systems are basically emergence. I want, there, there are three phases, sub-phases of emergence that are not terribly interesting right now. Uh, but then uh, the next three phases uh, are when the international system uh, and I'm speaking of the system, I'm not speaking of any actors, I'm not speaking of state actors, I'm speaking of the system looked at as a system, as a complex system, in fact. Uh, tr- decides where it wants to go, how it wants to evolve, which principles, it, how, how, it's, how it's going to evolve. And then the third uh, set of three phases are coherence. I mean, the, the technical word for the second one is autopoiesis, which you know, but it literally means goal creation, or self-creation. I'm sorry, autopoiesis is self-creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third is emergence. And what usually happens uh, is that in the seventh of the nine phases, which is the first of the last three, uh, the system fails to meet the demands to maintain itself that have emerged uh, over the course of its life from the uh, development of uh, demographic, economic, technological developments that, put, that, that lead peoples to put demands upon their states, which participate in the international system, uh, which uh, bring up new demands. Now, the first three phases of the Cold War International System ran roughly through 2016. Now, what's very interesting about the one we're in is that the fourth phase, which more or less coincides with the Trump administration, in the past, you look at the past international system, they usually goes on trying to do what it did for the first three because it worked. But what you have looked at systemically uh, under uh, the last half of the last decade is the opposite. You have the firm positing of an opposition, which did not exist before. In, um, uh, in the political consciousness, although it may have existed in the economic reality, opposition between, you know, for simpl- for sake of simplification, the US and China, or U.S. Sp- a US-centered sphere and a China-centered sphere. Uh, usually, this sort of thing would not uh, emerge until the fifth phase, which we are now in, which coincides roughly with this Biden administration which latter uh, appears to be continuing uh, the previous policies as regards Russia, as regards China, but not as regards Iran. And that has, uh, uh, th- that will have unfortunate consequences for the international system and the people living in it, if uh, if that trend continues. Uh, and you can ask me uh, about that if you wish. Uh, now I will. You asked me that. That takes us up to 2025, uh, and you asked me for three to five years, so I'll stop there and await your next question.
0: And my question, of course, uh, will be that uh, following your three to five years anticipation, what is your take on the 2030s, 2040s, and specifically, are we going to fit, witness a bifurcation of uh, the global system? uh that would mean um, which is more or less my idea about uh, having two parallel systems um, in a sense uh, something not of course similar because there are no they are never never two um, equal cases in history, but if you take uh, the Cold War with the uh, bipolarity between uh, the United States and uh, Soviet Union, just to give uh, the audience audience an idea what this bifurcation would mean, is in this particular case uh, a kind of uh, systemic decoupling of China from from the US-led socio-economic systems, and creating alternative networks in every relevant domain from uh, trade, economy, uh, energy, to diplomacy, international regional organizations, uh, to um other so supply chains of course to agriculture and so on and even if you take space uh, we are already observing certain trends china is not included in the international space uh, system, uh, station uh, so now is considering to build its own one uh, in a cooperation with russia for instance uh, on the moon but i suppose that there will be at some point an international space station also um, which will operate in isolation from uh, from the West. So, what is your take on that matter? How do you see the world, the global uh, affairs, in uh, from the perspective of uh, of uh, twenty t- twenty to uh, basically yes, so fifteen to twenty years from now, and then we will move also towards answering some questions. Uh, from the audience, so be short (laughs) on your... Yes,
1: well, bifurcation is not decoupling. Uh, I recall to you that during the Cold War, uh, the uh, two uh, world systems, as they were called by some people at that time, uh, capitalism and socialism, uh, in the beginning there was no contact, but this increased over time. and uh, still, uh, given uh, the current uh, level of development of uh, technological relation technolo- of technology, certainly including communications, even if world trade may seem to be breaking down, nevertheless, and even if tourism seems to be breaking down, uh, nevertheless, uh, there is th- th- there is a continue- th- there is a continued connection. Uh, it's not like a divorce. Uh, a bifurcation is like going in separate ways but but you still have you still have holist, holistic for lack of a better word, connection between the two it's just like 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 a Lorentz uh, uh, figure it just bifurcates like that now it uh, I will briefly answer about the sixth and the seventh phases and this will give me the answer of the nine and this will answer this and i'm not and and it it, it's different as i said the evolution of an international system is uh path dependent uh it therefore will matter very much the results of the next uh u.s presidential election in 2024 uh from a systemic Point of view of the international system, Uh, that would be about the time when the sixth phase was is entered, out of nine. And the sixth phase is when the system strives toward what it posited earlier to be its goal. The technical word is entelechy, good Aristotelian Greek word, Uh, and uh, where the telos, the goal, is manifest in the activity. Of the system. Uh, By the way, complex systems. This seems a little abstract. This is this can be applied. uh, Human beings are complex systems, so this can be used to. uh, I've used it to analyze my own life. It's not just like you know up abstractions up there, you know. So um, and and analyze other social and political phenomena. So uh, I just mentioned that in passing, in 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 the event that it begins to seem a bit too abstract. Uh, but the further you go into the future, uh, you're inviting me to be a little more abstract. Uh, and then the seventh phase, uh, which would fall I- approximately in the, well, the late 20s and the early 30s, is the most difficult for every complex system, including international systems, because the seventh phase is when a system needs to manifest anti-fragility. And what they usually manifest is over-resilience. Resilience Resilience is great, but too much resilience makes a system weak and easily broken, which is what happened to all the international systems you look at back to the early 15th century. Um, And so you know what anti-fragility is, but uh, I'll just leave it like that. Uh, And if you want to explain to the audience, you can do that uh and then uh what happens is going to be a breakdown uh i don't know what the trigger is going to be the trigger could be uh hard to say i mean it, things are going to become much more interesting in the next 10 years uh more small scale wars uh, resource scarcity uh uh and so on uh, uh which leads to interstate conflict and all sorts of things like that um and uh And of course, now moving further on, in the next 10 years, Rudiger Dornbusch, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, was at MIT. If he's alive, he still is. uh, Had a phrase, which is that, the crisis always takes longer to arrive than you expect, and it always develops faster than you can imagine. That's what's going to happen. I don't know, late 20s, early 30s, it's going to have something to do with China because Chinese economy is uh, failing. Uh, Demography is destiny. Population has started to decline. Percentage of population and workforce is not going to grow. And uh, again, it's path dependent. We don't know. We can, we can centerize or do forecasts, uh, you know, uh, if you have a day a one day seminar or something but but it's it's got to have something to do with china uh and um and that may well induce more uh, hostile militarized behavior by china where we don't know when we don't know it's going to depend on situational mm-hmm. things then the night then the 2030s are going to be extremely interesting because the whole system's going to break down uh rather like it's well, the Cold War system is the one that we remember best, uh, it didn't break, didn't take 10 years to break down, but it was break, your case could be made, it was breaking down after the, already after the fall of the Soviet-American detente at the end of the 1970s, started to break down uh, as internal things in the Soviet Union led to the inevitability and it just happened to happen sooner rather than later. Uh, thanks to, because of Gorbachev, to the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And then there's going to be the eighth and the ninth phase, won't go into detail. Um, But these phases uh, each last uh, about five years. I don't know why. It's just the way it is. They don't always last five years in every international system. It's just what the pattern tells you is the case. And then uh, there's going to be a grand collapse uh, in the early to mid 2040s, then there's going to be another international system transition, like the 1990s was a transition from the from the the post Cold War transition, if you remember, from the Cold War system to where we are now, starting in 2001 2002. Uh, And then there's going to be uh, from up until, let's say, roughly 2044 to 2057, something like that. Another transition. And then the next international system after that is going to begin to emerge. And we don't have any idea what that's going to be like, uh, except that one might note that by 2060, the population of China will be 1.3 billion. The population of India will be 1.7 billion. Uh, The percentage of the uh, Chinese population in the workforce will will be 37%. The percentage of the population in the Indian workforce will be 66%. This gives you a little bit to think about, but that's quite a ways out. So I'll stop there.
0: That's uh, certainly a talk that we are going to conduct, uh, let's say, in 10 years (laughs) from now uh, to make just uh, two clarifications for our audience. And then we move immediately uh, to the questions, to the Q&A. I will extend the talk because they are really good questions. And uh, since the audience was so patient to wait until now, I want to address the questions too. Now, uh, we spoke about um, resilience and anti- Fragility, and uh, we spoke also about complex systems. So you can check uh, on internet; uh, it's uh, there is a lot of information about uh, these Let terms. Let define a complex this...
1: system. I can do this very briefly. Let me define a complex system. But if system. it's
0: really only with one it's sentence, one, it's like because... one sentence. Yes, A complex system do this. is
1: a system of which the behavior cannot be predicted from studying the behavior of its component parts. Exactly. a human cell a human person a human society etc a canonical non complex system is an automobile factory you can study the inputs you know how they're transformed you can predict what's going to come out complex system a hu- biological cell is the canonical example thank you that's all
0: and uh, starting from there because you also mentioned antifragility which is a term that Nassim Taleb introduced in his, in his book antifragile Uh, is basically a uh, a state that goes beyond resilience, because resilience was also mentioned. So, as uh, he points out, uh, resilience is where uh, the resilient system resists any shocks, but stays the same so basically continues functioning uh, once uh, the shock occurs but the antifragile gets Mm. better or thrives from crisis so an antifragile style state would mean that the system would actually get better uh, following a crisis uh, because it
1: does not try to do the new things in the old ways.
0: Exactly. So these were two clarifications for our audience. If they are interested, uh, maybe you can also pro- provide some literature or uh, tell us about uh, um, a book that you would recommend to the audience about uh, this specific uh, about this specific uh, systems thinking. But maybe we will. Uh, I think if there is interest, maybe we we'll, should consider also um, assessing and analyzing and assessing global affairs from the prism of complex systems and complexity uh, in in an additional uh, session. Uh, Now, uh, let's go to the questions. I see that uh, there have been uh, comments in the last half an hour. So, there is, for instance, a question. Uh, We have to go back to the Caucasus, of course. So, there is a question. About uh, the current uh, Tajik uh, Tajikistan Kyrgyzstan skirmishes, uh, it's not how the
1: Caucasus? But go ahead.
0: <laughs> it's not the Caucasus, but the question goes uh, back to the, to the to our previous uh, uh, to our original topic, um, and uh, the question specifically this one is about the Central Asian countries Tajikistan and Kyrgyz, uh, Kyrgyzstan, the skirmishes that have occurred there. How do you link them? To, uh, to to the developments that we've discussed regarding China's activities, regarding Russians uh, Russians' um, interests, and uh, in this broader region, they
1: they're they're not so much related to uh, the broad brush sorts of things. Uh, there have been uh, conflicts of interest uh, amongst uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan over natural resources. Uh, water including and especially water uh, since um, since 30 years ago and uh, if there have been uh, military conflicts there's just a, this is just a military expression of social and economic conflicts that were already always there so it's really a local phenomenon you if you wanted to take a complex system framework you call it an emergent phenomenon and see where it's going uh, but but it's really not due to a Russian this or, or Chinese that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a very important clarification, by the way, because we should not link everything and uh, each development to um, necessarily to uh, the role of uh, the bigger actors. Now there is also a question um, which. Uh, Sounds as follows: Given that we are seeing clear ideological lines being drawn into politics, with the emergence of an assertive China joining together with Iran and Russia, uh, will the European Union have to choose a side? And by the yes. way, yes. Okay.
1: I think I th- I, I I saw uh, a headline a few days ago. I think that that that, that the uh, the European Union. Uh, certainly at least the European parliament but i think even the european union you will know this better than i do because you're a closer observer uh or uh, or or one of the presidents of the european union made made a statement concerning uh the um the Uyghur genocide uh, that, uh, see, that 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 is taken by some observers to mark uh a a a a certain significance. Um, so,
0: um, okay. I know you're, is, you're,
1: you're yeah, go ahead.
0: Yes, there is an additional question which I think is also interesting, uh, linked to this one. Uh, it is, Is the European Union going to put economics first, rather than uh, its democratic values? And how far is the European Union prepared to put boots on the ground if there is really a serious escalation in uh, Central Eurasia? But I would add also Eastern Europe.
1: Well, uh, to my knowledge, uh, the the European Union per se has very few boots to put anywhere and uh, no uh, logistics stream to support them uh, for very long. I could be wrong about that. Uh, That answer would vary according to the member states, many of which are in the same situation. Uh, France may be the only one that could uh, project a certain amount of force uh, now that the UK has left. Um, But um, uh, I'm sorry, could you repeat the the, the end of the question?
0: Of course. So the question is, uh, is the European Union going to put economics first rather than oh, democratic my. values? Well,
1: that's that's a political issue for the EU leadership to decide. Uh, and uh, it's uh, well known uh, that uh, the European Parliament has made many, has, has voted at near unanimity. Uh, various condemnations of China for various reasons uh, whereas uh, if I understand correctly, not being uh, an expert on EU international trade uh, that, that, that the rapprochement with China seems to be driven largely, please correct me if I'm wrong because you're there in Vienna, uh, seems to be driven largely by um, German uh, industrial interests. Uh, I could go on at length. Mm-hmm. Long, I, I could go on longer about that, but since you said there are so many interesting questions, I'll stop yeah, there.
0: Yeah, indeed.
1: Uh, so that, that's really that's a political question to be decided in Brussels, and of course, uh, you know, that's also going to depend partly upon the elections upcoming in the various member states. So it's really um, it's really a toss-up you know, what what, what the EU is going to decide and how how they're going through their laborious procedure decided.
0: What I can add uh, in regard uh, to these two questions is uh, first that the European Union is doing simultaneously both. On the one side, it is the only external actor that actually supports democratic processes in these countries, if they desire, of course, if the decision makers and the society uh, desire to to introduce the reforms, but the only external actor that is really, really Uh, offering a a, a whole package, so to say, so next to uh, Geoeconomic uh, Trade Pact, which uh, in the case, for instance, of uh, Georgia and Mm -hmm. um, in the case of Ukraine and um, Moldova is even an introduction to the to the common market, to the European common market, uh, there is also a package that is related to reforms uh, in uh, the direction of good governance and uh, societal uh, transformation. Okay. So, this is a, certainly a plus. So, I would not, uh, I would not make. A Uh, this kind of prioritization between economics and democratic values when it comes to this region. Then the question about uh, how far the European Union is prepared to put uh, boots on the ground, well uh, Robert was pretty clear and I would just add that uh, not prepared at all. Uh, But there is now another question which I don't i will just ask uh, it doesn't it's not relevant uh you know for for our discussion and i'm not sure whether you you are familiar with this uh issue about uh the letter that was signed uh, by more than thousand um, personnel in france including more than 25 retired generals warning macron um that france uh, is um, Heading for a civil war. Yes, I am so
1: aware of I am aware of this letter. yeah. you
0: are aware. So there is a question. You. It's up to you to decide whether you want to answer it or not. Uh, with the French um, uh, general's letter, uh, as well as large public support for the for a potential coup, would we see a more aggressive French foreign policy? This is the question. I, I'm not sure whether it is about uh, the regents. Specifically about uh, Eastern Europe, because we know that the French foreign security policy is actually directed more towards the South and increasingly towards the Indo Pacific. But uh, like I said, it's up to you to decide whether you want to answer this question or how to interpret it.
1: Well, I'm unable to say the degree to which it signifies the, p- the potential for a coup. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that's—it's uh, the first time I've heard that interpretation. But at the risk of seeming- maybe to make
0: a clarification, that um, that um, the French minister uh, who's in charge of the armed forces warned that any of the letters uh, signatories. Uh, who might still be serving in uh, the military, would be punished
1: mm.
0: without well, explicitly uh, clarifying uh, I, in I what can, way. I can, so, yeah. I, so, I, I, I,
1: can, I can just offer one comment, which I hope does not seem flippant, but also it's offered at least over half in a serious vein, taking into account um, the um, hereditary, uh, nature of many of the French elite, including in the armed forces, and uh, given uh, the object of their concern, uh, I kind of see it. I have thought about. I have had a chance to think a little bit about it. This is only as far as I've gotten, uh, so I apologize if it seems flippant. But um, the Franks are mobilizing against the Caliphate again
0: hmm. And that is a very useful answer uh, as a point of reference. Um, um, there is also a question about whether you could make some book recommendations, whereas it's not clarified once again, whether it's uh, about book recommendations uh, regarding uh, South Caucasus or regarding oh your <laughs>
1: I, I can't. If, the, if there's no topic, I can't help. I mean, I would like to help. I think that what, what since I am added in uh, your announcement, uh, I mean I'm I'm on Twitter. You're going to give them my uh, my exactly. handle, and uh, the this talk is also has been tweeted. So if someone you know comes in and adds me uh, in a reply to a talk or even directly and wants to be more uh, particular, more specific, um, I'll tell you my Twitter handle is Robert M. The middle initial is M cutler c-u-t-l-e-r that's at robert m cutler uh and uh, you're 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 welcome to direct any questions to me you know directly as well And, 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 and and you might you might want to also you know direct them to valina because she's also an expert on complex systems
0: so, anyway, we are both easily easily to be found on social media. And in case you have uh, specific questions uh, regarding uh, Robert's uh, analysis or uh, considering uh, sources uh, to read about topics that he uh, covers, uh, feel free to engage on social media. Uh, final question, uh, which has just uh, appeared on the chat, uh, is um in the chat room is given european union's military unpreparedness is it likely that china and russia the dragon bear would be testing european union by launching hybrid warfare it's already the case by the way yeah. as well as direct military aggression in the next five years i suppose it's meant uh, the eastern neighborhood uh, whereas uh, Russia has actually increased its presence also in the southern neighborhood. But it's up to you to answer this question.
1: Um, I'm not an expert on uh, military strategy uh, or materiel. My, uh, that having been said, it would seem to me that uh, the Russian military is uh, uh, has enough on its hands at present and that any Further deployment is for psychological intimidations, very much by the way, in the vein of how the SS-20 missiles were in uh, the late 70s and the early 80s. There was no uh, during the Cold War. Uh, I do want to uh, uh, add one last thing uh, in final answer, in, in 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 that I neglected to mention in reply to your earlier question, Valina, about uh, the further evolution. Uh, yes. Uh, I think that we have and you just mentioned it, uh Russia, China, Iran, alliance is the wrong word. Uh I, I actually like I've actually started to call it the triple mesalliance. I like
0: <laughs> it. sounds but, quite um, quite fitting, uh, by the way. But,
1: uh you can call it the uh whatever you want to call it the triple block, but 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 uh that uh this and this and this is why any appeasement of Iran is not in the interest of anyone who is not aligned with Russia and China. It's not even in Europe's interest. Uh, And I think this is. Go ahead. I I just want to go on after you finish that comment. No. Okay. And and the question then is if there's a bifurcation, what's going to be the other uh, part of the fork? And the answer is uh, the, and I'm, I'm, I, have looked at your list of previous guests, uh, and I'm certain that they have talked uh, at least somewhat about uh, the emerging anglosphere. Uh, this is this will be the other part. The Anglosphere is uh, not m- only cultural, not only linguistic. Uh, it's based on all the the five eyes. UK, Canada, uh, US, Australia, New Zealand. Although New, although New Zealand is uh, seems to be opting out, um, and um, it's based on common law. It's based that the fact there are common law systems that make it easier than elsewhere to establish businesses and to uh, enterprises and to and to have them grow, and a whole uh, network of what. Some social scientists used to call social capital, which is a term I never liked much, but it has a certain connotation uh, uh, that is involved in that. Now, if uh, what else is there going to be? Uh, there's going to be like the five eyes minus one. Uh, India is already joining in with the quad. Japan will add itself in uh, for strategic purposes. So basically you have the five eyes plus the quad uh minus one but because the u.s and australia have dual membership it's really six but we're going to have other members we don't expect i think there's a there's a chance that vietnam's going to opt in you know mm-hmm. and they're an important country uh economically uh, uh uh dynamic strong military and no friend of china <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so uh there's if you'll indulge me there's this once famous cartoon, uh, editorial cartoon in the United States when, uh, I think it was Deng Xiaoping. uh, You know that China invaded Vietnam in the, I think it was the late 70s. And the war lasted a few months. And and it happened uh, after Deng Xiaoping uh, returned from a visit to the United States. And so there was this cartoon. He's sitting on a psychiatrist's couch. He's wearing uh, cowboy boots with spurs. He has a cowboy hat, and he says, doctor, I have no idea what happened. I visited the United States, I went to Disneyland, I ate at McDonald's, I had Coca-Cola, and when I came back, I invaded Vietnam <laughs> <laughs> oh. So China and Vietnam are not friends. I would not be surprised to see Vietnam. China and, and also, Vietnam side, are definitely not side, friends,
0: yeah, yes. On the other
1: side, you're gonna have like uh, other hangers on, like Pakistan in the, in, in the three-way. You know, it's going to be, they're going to be clusters, yeah and then yes. clusters upon clusters. But that's, um, that's the road we're on. That is the road that we are on uh, until uh, mid-century uh, and how it develops. Uh, the, the, the international system, for some reason, somehow is not going to be able to manage the bifurcation That's what's going to, because resource scarcity and all these things we talked about, uh, and uh, it's going to break down, and then there's going to be a new international transition, and then there's going to be another international system in the second half of the century.
0: And for our audience, just one sentence of uh, clarification about bifurcation, because uh, they listen to us.
1: It it comes from the Latin word for fork. It means forking into two directions is what it means.
0: So this is the point basically for them to un- so for for everyone to understand and, to and imagine what decoupling it means. Because
1: the coupling usually means divorce, usually. Yeah.
0: So the bifurcation is the point at which uh, something in this particular case, the same, the system divides in two branches, in two parts. And the famous systemic decoupling introduced by Trump's administration is basically uh, the um, chimeric phenomenon, the entanglement between China Mm -hmm. and United States, not the system, but now you take these two actors which have uh, been entangled in various uh, domains, sectors, and fields, Mm -hmm. and uh, the process of decoupling of China from the uh, US-led um networks is this process that is called systemic yes and from a
1: systemic point of view the bifurcation is a search for stability because it couldn't handle itself as a unity so it's split into 2 or it's splitting into two which are still significantly interconnected uh but it's um it's it's like one of those cluster diagrams that you see you know, one cluster over here, one cluster over here, with some connections between them. And that that's a search for stability by the system, actually. Uh, but it's not going to work in the medium to long run, because mm-hmm. As you things lines. come up. Demography is not controllable. Demography, economic development, technological development, resource scarcity. These are things that are not politically determined from the top down. These are things that drive change from the bottom up.
0: From bottom up, exactly. And this is, I think, an increasingly good way how to finish this conversation that lasted for almost 90 minutes. I uh, am using the uh, opportunity once again to thank you warmly for being with me in the last 90 minutes and for extensively outlining so many concepts and covering so many interesting issues and I might reveal uh, to our audience that uh, the topic of the sphere is going to be further covered. I'm going to invite uh, another guest uh, very soon, Nicholas Glinsman, and he is a macro and geopolitics uh, specialist who is very familiar with this concept. So we will also use uh, another digital talk format to, uh, to uh, bring uh, this uh, concept uh, nearer to our audience. And uh, I'm also uh, planning to invite an intelligence um, uh, specialist uh, who is going to cover the issues within the five eyes and also the issues with the increasing threats and risks coming out of uh, from from this specific domain. This is just a teaser for the audience. And uh, uh, once again, thank you very much for being with me, Uh, please. feel free to and do not hesitate to send requests to Robert. You can find him on Twitter um, and you can find uh, him also on my Twitter uh, timeline as I will be posting this digital talk in a YouTube format and also in an Apple podcast format. Thank you very much for being with me and uh, stay safe and sound.
1: Thank you, Valina, for being such an excellent moderator and interviewer.
0: Thank you.